This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Amy Kittlestrom is Associate Professor of History at Sonoma State University. Her specialization is 19th century American thinkers and their socio-political context. She has served in the past as fellow with the Center for Religion and American Life at Yale, the Charles Warren Center at Harvard University, and the Center for the Study of Religion at Princeton. Her newest book, The Religion of Democracy, Seven Liberals and the American Moral Tradition. I'm glad to welcome Professor Amy Kittlestrom today to Thinking in Public. Professor Kittlestrom, every book has a story, and uh, this particular book has to have an interesting story behind it. How did you come to do this research and to produce this particular volume? Well, uh, it's a long story, right? Because it took a long time to get all the way to this book. And it started with a question that I thought was relatively modest, because I was reading William James, the philosopher whose book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, a lot of people continue to read, uh, both within uh, religious contexts and without them. And uh, so I was reading William James and wondering just what kind of religion he was talking about. Um, He was so clearly uh, engaged with a question of how a person could hold a religious belief sincerely and also sincerely respect other people who held different beliefs. So this is a question of pluralism, and it was something that I hadn't seen earlier in American history, but I certainly saw later, not just in American history, but beyond. So I started by asking, where did his ideas about religion come from, given that he himself was not a professing Christian? And at the same time, he obviously sincerely respected the Christian, various Christian traditions. And so I just started by going through his writings, his library, his correspondence. I, uh, I read all his marginalia and all of those kinds of things and reconstructed the community in which he operated, the other people who had similar kinds of questions and so on. And then I thought as I was transforming it into a book, just to add a chapter from before his life. So he was born in 1842, and that antebellum generation of transcendentalists, Christians and post-Christians, seemed really clearly to be involved uh, in creating this way of thinking about religion that had something to do with democracy and had something to do with pluralism. And then in the course of reading those uh, works from before the Civil War, the bottom dropped out, and I found a kind of Christian version of pragmatism. So pragmatism, the name of James's philosophy, I found a kind of Christian pragmatism way back in the 18th century. So I had to go all the yeah. way back there. Very interesting. Well, just in terms of tracing the history of ideas, your book is very, very interesting, but it, it, it also it makes an argument. And the argument shows up right on the cover of your book entitled The Religion of Democracy, Seven Liberals and the American Moral Tradition. You are really talking about a new religion in in a very real sense that was uh, brought about in the era of your concern with the seven individuals uh, you discuss and and consider in the book. And uh, you are defining what they really represented as as a project as a religion of democracy. Yes, uh... That term I took from William James, and uh, and he shared it with, uh, with with some other people in the late 19th century. People in the in the in the 1700s and early 1800s weren't using that. And one of the things that was so dramatic for me uh, in the discovery of all this was that this way of thinking about faith, uh, God, uh, the religious duties, and so on preceded the birth of American democracy and was specifically a Christian way of thinking and then informed the creation of the republic through John Adams and others and then continued on 
I agree that in, you know it's a it's a it's a new approach to religion. It's a very specifically Protestant way of thinking about faith, and at the same time, I think it's something that became compatible with holding a specific kind of creedal commitment that it could actually accompany something more specific than this pluralistic approach that I describe. Well, as an evangelical reader of your book. I, I found it truly fascinating. For one thing, I've always been tremendously interested in William James, and uh, I would identify James as probably the most important original thinker in American history, actually. And, I agree uh, with you. And you do. Well, that, you know, in term, and I, I think just about anyone from, uh, uh, from either the uh, uh, position of appreciation of James or uh, even in a respectful critique of James have to understand that everything that comes after him has to make some reference to him, even yeah. right down to the issue of truth. And, and yet you're looking at the fact that, that James did not emerge ex nihilo, we might say, out of nothing. He, he, he was coming out of an intellectual context that you track very interestingly going back to the, uh, the revolutionary era. But why start with John Adams? Why not start with uh, Thomas Jefferson or with Hale or one of the more perhaps uh, less traditionally Christian figures than John Adams? Why start with John Adams? Well, in, in fact, exactly because his Christianity is vital, I think, to understanding him and to understanding the separation between church and state that's that's bound into the nation. So first, just I'm really glad that you like James as I do and, and that you consider him that way. Um, in, 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 I just meant to tug on that string, but it turned out to be so central to the course of American history that I got a lot more with it um, than just James. Um, so why not Thomas Jefferson? I try to deal with that a little bit in the uh, in the introduction because um, Jefferson, uh, you know, he had had some um, some uh, you know we use this term deism, which isn't quite uh, appropriate in some ways because there was no deist church. You know, nobody said I'm a deist, capital D. Um, but with, with Jefferson, you you know, he wasn't confessional. He wasn't. Uh, faithful to a particular religious tradition, and he took it upon himself to, you know, cut up the Bible and paste it back together with the bits he liked, right? right. Um, so he's so far from um, from 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 orthodoxy in some ways that well, he's he's completely worth studying. And by all means, I'd love to find out what somebody else. Um, could make of him in light of the tradition I recover, he wasn't part of the conversation. So for me, you know, I use these seven figures really as um, interlocutors, as, as people who help readers connect to other people who were speaking and working and writing in the past. Well, I have one and more theory to suggest to you in that, and, uh-huh. and, and just reading your book, and that is that he didn't live in Boston, uh, yes, at no, least exactly in terms right. of the exactly early part right. of your book. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That um, and and that's actually kind of where I was trying to go with this thing about the conversation because the conversation absolutely starts in Boston and right around Boston, and it develops and it spreads and print and westward migration and all these things are involved. Um, but but Jefferson was a Virginian, and he his his uh, mental lights were very European. Uh, where what I'm talking about was a homegrown tradition. John Adams was a farm boy, you know, who uh, ended up teaching at, at, a, at a village school out in Worcester, Mass., and there he spent his time reading sermons, copying them in his diary, going to, to different churches, thinking about what the ministers said, and coming up with his own way of thinking about religion. And that, to me, is so vital that his independent-mindedness that becomes an independent-mindedness crucial for the American Revolution and democracy starts with his inner conviction. These are the beliefs that I have, and I'm not going to impose them on others, but I'm not going to pretend I don't have them either, right? And so that is the kind of pluralistic motion of uh, owning your 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 convictions um, and recognizing, you know, this is what Adams did, that you don't actually know the mind of God, right? So, so Adams is, Adams had this humility in his in his youth that doesn't come across when he's a statesman, where uh, you know he's praying to the master of the universe and 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 acknowledging that he doesn't understand all the stars and the nebulae, he'll leave them to God. But in the meantime, he's going to work on his human relations and his morality, his conduct within 
the spheres that he can see and understand. You know, that seems to be a, a, an issue rather common in this revolutionary era and uh, perhaps something that would link a more deistic Jefferson. And by, and by the way, I, I, I'm, as you, are very familiar with contemporary debates like uh, Matthew Stewart's work, uh, you know, suggesting that they aren't deists in the sense of belonging to a deist church. I would simply say theologically they fit the definition of a deist. Uh, their, their belief system is very consistent with anything rightly defined as deist. But uh, but when you look at John Adams, and, and for that matter, you look at Washington, uh, less uh, less philosophical in this sense than, than Adams, it is interesting how they're concerned with the moral universe, and they're concerned with moral agency at, at the very heart of their concerns. Uh, their, their concerns seem to be far less cosmological than moral. That's right. That's right. And so uh, moral agency is a, a key term of my book that I got from those um, theologians of the 1700s who, who talked about it a lot. And it's not just a mere kind of virtue where we, we try to obey the Ten Commandments and things like that. Um, it's, it's, it's more ambitious than that because it is about using the free will that they believe God had given, has given all his creatures, using that free will as God would want you to use it. So the agency is about that exercise of choice, and the moral part is about doing it in, in, in this way that would be um, uh, as God wanted it, and that involves a conception of God uh, that is he's impartial. He does yeah. not discriminate among his creatures. You know, and an so interesting to me, thing. it's a real linchpin yeah. of the pluralism that I find later. You know, as a theologian reading your book, that, that term moral agency is right, very central to that theological vocabulary. And what's really interesting, and uh, I, I don't know if you considered this uh, or not, but someone like John Witherspoon that you, you deal with, you make a reference to him in the book, um, he represents a theological tradition that would use the phrase uh, moral agency as a way of not talking about free will. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, shifting the discussion about the will to the issue of agency, saying that uh, the human beings made in the image of God operate with true agency, that is, make real choices for which they are really responsible in a very real moral universe. And and so when you're thinking about, for instance, the more Calvinistic strain that's in the background to your book, uh, someone like Witherspoon would affirm moral agency, but what wouldn't want to express it in terms of, of the absolute freedom of the will. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's great. And, and, you know, Witherspoon, he's just a little part of my story, sure. but you've already given a sense of how, how involved, you know, he and other Scottish thinkers might have been involved, right? I mean, it's a much bigger thing. Um, but, but I think you, you put that exactly right. And then the contrast there with uh, a Jonathan Edwards, who gives you just enough free will to hang yourself on, right? I mean, <laughs> you just get enough free will um, to, to need to rely, uh, you know, exclusively on, on God. And so with, with Witherspoon, with the people I call liberals um, from this earlier period, uh, moral agency is a, a real responsibility, and it's a, a, a and and it links. Then it has this political implication because you have a right to exercise your agency and a duty to do so. You know, a duty yes. to oh, grow uh, toward likeness to God, and so then that becomes the foundation for arguments against slavery. Right? Oh, absolutely. My uh, my own theological convictions and tradition would be very close to those of Jonathan Edwards. But Edwards really wasn't operating in the same period in the same way, in that when you're looking at John Adams, uh, or for that matter, even John Witherspoon, you, you are looking at people who are trying to figure out how moral order can be maintained in uh, in some kind of democratic experiment. If, if you remove the traditional hierarchies, uh, in, in, including uh, anything like a state church or a uh, or, uh, is some kind of theocratic uh, structure in terms of control of the community. The question is, how do you have a moral people? And uh, so I would draw a line, actually, from Jonathan Edwards to John Adams in that concern. Oh, yeah. And, you know, every time I open my mouth about Jonathan Edwards, I'm reminded of what a complex figure he was and such Absolutely. a sophisticated intellect. And, and, you know, my representation is crude, right? When, when, I, when I, you know, I can't, I can't uh, faithfully represent uh, the work of Jonathan Edwards. But I will slip in that I, I first read Jonathan Edwards in William James's library. 
Oh, my goodness. And James also really grappled with the sophistication of of Edwards' theology. So um, just to acknowledge that. But, you know, what you say about uh, the maintenance of moral order and democracy is another really complex, nettlesome set of questions. And uh, it's something I try to engage with in part because I think some historians have treated the the landscape of the early 19th century getting into the antebellum period in, in, in an overly simplistic way so that the Federalists who become Whigs, who are this kind of Christian that I'm talking about vaguely, are uh, they use the word conservative. They say they're about social control and so on. And I have evidence to back that up because William Ellery Channing said, you know, he would no sooner want to see most people voting than his 10-year-old. Right. So that's elitist and and condescending and all of those kinds of things. So that's part of it. But there's another part of it that I think is important, which is about the answer to that problem of how do you have moral order in a democracy being from from this side, um, the Federalist Whig liberal Protestant side um, to empower each individual more through education Mm. so that they are capable of exercising their moral agency rather than being subject to the will of, for example, in early industrial capitalism, their bosses, right? And so so the established church goes out, the, the public schools come in, and, okay, questions of the the practical effects the the you know the the mechanics of it that's important but kind of to the side the idea behind it is each student even girls even laborers even the children of immigrants all of them should have access to that same really radiant divine potential of unlocking their inner reason and conscience and letting those be what guides their behavior rather than passion and weakness. And But moral the, behavior the is right at the center of it, you know, whether it's Horace Mann or John Dewey. And you make reference to both, uh, but uh, and especially I, I knew you had to get to Dewey because of your, your conception of the religion of democracy and his a common faith. That's basically what he explicitly called for as a, as a replacement of, of Christianity as the guiding ethos of the country. But uh, th- th- those... Those uh, proponents of the common school that became the public school, they were looking for uh, an answer to the question, and that is how you're going to create a moral people out of the teeming masses of Americans. And uh, and, and so I, I, you could draw a direct line from your seven individuals to uh, to, to the public schools as a, as a moral experiment. That's right. And as a question, right? So yes. um, uh, how, how, how do you do it? Uh, you know, the philosophy behind it is one thing, but then the politics of implementation are, are, are quite different. Um, and you, so you're absolutely right that I thought about Dewey and where he differs. Uh, I mean, he, he's sort of a variety, maybe a variety of this religion, democracy and expression of it. Um, but he differs from his good friend and colleague, Jane Adams who gets a lot more attention in my book, because exactly like you said, Dewey says, let's have this common faith and replace things that he judged as superstitious or whatever. And she's saying, no, have your faith, have whatever it is. Um, But let's see if we can agree on common needs. In terms of the seven individuals, uh, we've talked about John Adams, but there are six others. How did you come to these six? And and I want to tell you just in terms of... uh, of, of reading your book, I, I met two people that I really had never met before in your book. How, how did you come to the other six after John Adams? Um, well, so I so I started with William James, and then, like I said, I worked through his sources, uh, and I was really interested in tracing the the lived intellectual connections. So rather than on my own imposing some kind of structure on the past. I wanted to work through the past to find the way it looked on the ground. So through James, Thomas Davidson, who must be one of the people new to you, uh, was one of the people he corresponded with the most and liked the most and spent the most time with. And was his brother-in-law. Well, okay, the next one, William McIntyre Salter, was his brother-in-law. And so he was. those two emerged as people being really important to William James, who the historical record, you know, hasn't uh, kept alive. And, and so they, first of all, they deserve a voice in our past. 
um, not just because they were important to James, but because of what they were doing in their moment. Um, but then they're, they're, they're overlapping with James, and it's the overlap that I'm so interested in. Jane Addams, similar, because she knew those people, and she corresponded with James, who admired her work very much, so she has a natural tie in. And then when I was going backwards, um, I went backwards into the antebellum era, era and found William Ellery Channing, the minister who's often called the father of Unitarianism. Of course, he called himself a Christian, uh, first and foremost. Um, and, the, and, and his writings continued to be read and cited later, so I ultimately did find references to Channing in William James's uh, record and his correspondence sure. with his wife and so on. So that was organic. And then Mary Moody Emerson, the aunt of the famous Ralph Waldo Emerson, came in in a similarly organic way because of her ties to Channing, not just her nephew, but lots of transcendentalists and her moment, and especially because she illustrates so well how you can be a liberal on the one hand, meaning uh, open-ended, uh, progress-oriented, and trying to respect other people's differing beliefs, and be such a sincere, ardent, practicing Christian, you know, that she prays in her diary to God, and she prays to conform to his will, right? So, so there's no question about her piety, and that helped me work against the story that there's a falling away of piety that's inevitable if there's a loss of particular kinds of articles of faith. Instead, it was actually the article of faith to be open-minded, right? And so... Um, um, it was working through the sources and finding where the biggest density of references were that helped me find these people who then give me windows onto their periods. One of the things we must always keep in mind is that ideas do not merely exist in the atmosphere. They exist in people. People who have thought of these ideas, who have written about these ideas, conversed about these ideas... And as we come to consider the ideas, we have to consider the people behind these ideas. And that's exactly why I found this book so interesting. Indeed, the two people I really didn't know before reading your book at, at all were Thomas Davidson and uh, Mary Moody Emerson. But uh, raising Emerson in particular uh, leads me to go back and ask you a couple of definitional issues here. Because at several points in your book, you use the phrase Reformation Christianity. Mm -hmm. and, and when you use that phrase, what do you mean uh, by those two words put together? Uh, thank you for asking that. I, I thought about it a lot. And so first of all, okay, I could have just said Protestantism. I could call Reformation Christians Protestants, and it would work fine. And I'm not... I'm not trying to say, oh, people shouldn't use the word Protestant or something like that. Um, but by saying Reformation Christian as a kind of person, I am uh, really trying to put the arrow back to the Protestant Reformation that happened in Europe in the 16th century and, um, and identify the Protestants in light of that Reformation, whose principles continue to be worked out over time, and of course today, continue to be contested and worked out. And really to, um, to, to underline the fact that it's an argument and a conversation and a discussion and a matter of contest, contest. because there's a story that's very common in American culture and American history, uh, which is that there is such a thing as an Orthodox Protestant faith in American history. And there really wasn't. There was no one orthodoxy that Americans ever agreed on in the colonial era or beyond. Instead, you have Reformation Christians with strong convictions and a great intimacy with the Bible, arguing with each other all the time over sometimes very small points, other times much bigger points, uh, and their sense of responsibility for articulating their own faith, I think, is, is really characteristic of the Reformation in, in a way that I think deserves, deserves highlighting. So I, I use in my introduction, I think, that famous line from Martin Luther of, of here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. This is his, his 
Christian conscience forcing him to do something that required great courage, right? No and doubt. Uh, even though the story of the Protestant Reformation is bigger than Martin Luther, and I can't retell uh, or rework the, the, the European Reformation in this book, um, the American story is enlightened, that is connected to it, isn't only a product of it, but is actually part of the process of the ongoing working out of the varieties of American Christianity in the world today. Yeah, you know, as an evangelical responding to that, let me just try this. Um, uh, I would have to define Reformation Christianity in terms with the creedal and confessional content to that Reformation Christianity. But when you use the phrase, I, 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 I did understand what you were doing. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the psychologist uh, Eric Erickson, you may know, you know, pointed mm-hmm. to Luther uh, and as a secular interpretation and, and to that moment at the Diet of Worms, Here I Stand, uh, where he spoke of conscience, I cannot violate conscience. And Erickson said there is the beginnings of modern individualism. And, uh, and, and certainly in that sense, uh, and, and, and let me just put it bluntly, none of these figures treated in your book have come out of a Catholic uh, worldview or tradition. They've all come out of, uh, of historic Protestantism, uh, congregationalism or, or, or the like. So I understand the sense in which you're saying that, but I, I also understand your argument to be that there is a religion of democracy that has a genuine piety and, 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 and a massive concern for, for a, a moral integrity and, and for the exercise of moral agency as an individual and for the inculcation of that in others as a society. But what would one have to disbelieve in terms of Orthodox Christianity in order no longer to be Protestant or perhaps to achieve even, uh, I think the word you resist, secular in this, because you do refer to many of these figures uh, and to the conversation partners they had as post-Christian. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you, you, you're saying one can be a Reformation Christian but be post-Christian, because as I'm reading it in, in the same chapter, you're, when you say Reformation Christian, you mean someone out of that trajectory of thought who may now no longer hold to any kind of orthodox Christianity as creedally and confessionally defined, but nonetheless is still holding to a, a sense of moral agency that came right out of that tradition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, I think your understanding is, is, is excellent, and your question is, too. And I, I'll, I'll have to kind of speculate my way into it. So, so first of all, you are right that I am separating specific creedal claims the catechism or confession of any kind of Christianity, I'm separating that from this idea of the liberty of conscience. Mm-hmm. Because even though they obviously coexisted and were both part of not just Martin Luther's ideas, but lots of uh, theologians of the early Reformation period and beyond, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually trying to argue with those points, or and even though I'm turning the light down on them, <laughs> that isn't to mean I'm trying to push them off the stage. It's just that the that um, separating them from this idea of liberty conscience, liberty of conscience, is necessary for understanding this wider history and this sure. trajectory. Right. Um, so, so by no means do I mean to deny those points or or even really to engage with them. Um, this line you gave me from Erickson is wonderful, and I hadn't known it. Um, and, and, but that's exactly the tweak that I'm, I'm trying to make. So modern individualism is taken in a way that's, um, you know, compatible with liberal capitalism and, you know, competing against your neighbor instead of helping them in community and, and so on. Um, and for me, what moral agency does is, um, is it increases the idea of individuality, sure. not individualism, right? And so you are, um, uh, each individual is, uh, you know, a unique snowflake created by God, right? So this idea, so you have, to, you have to unfold your own nature, and together you all make up this great mosaic of infinitely varied, um, you know, creatures. Um, so then what happens with this transition, it's not from Reformation Christian to post-Christian. It's some people who are in the Reformation Christian tradition go post-Christian. Others stay Christian, right? Uh, Others start talking to Jews who become part of this tradition without ever having gone through a Christian phase like this. Um, What would one have to disbelieve in order to embrace 
the religion of democracy. Uh, okay, so I think it depends on the person. This gets back to William James and the idea of mental temperaments. Right. Some people are like this. Some people are like that. Um, so for the people who went post-Christian, they had to give up the idea uh, of the singular divinity of Christ. This is why they're no longer Christian, because for them, Christ is not then the only voice of the divine, uh, you know, for the modern world, but that if the divine is found in all of God's creatures, then you can read Hindu texts, Persian texts, non-Christian texts, and actually have your spiritual life grow through them. For somebody with a specifically Christian orientation, the Bible remains the Word of God alone, right? And Christ... Yes a particular <laughs> figure, right, in that tradition. And so then, you know, some people will have argument, you know, so, so some people, Unitarians are not Christian automatically because they don't have a conception of the Trinity. For the early Unitarians, they were absolutely Christian. And, um, and, and their reworking of that aspect of theology was in line with their interpretation of the Bible. So, so once it goes actually past the 1830s, it gets so dispersed into different religious communities. And I try to suggest, I mean, I think it's true, but I would really need to study it more myself, that it comes back into Trinitarian Christianity insofar as a Presbyterian or whatever congregation thinks of their work as worldly as well as otherworldly, insofar as they're looking at the practical effects of their beliefs. To that extent, they have some of this uh, American Reformation tradition in in their in their practice also. Sure, you know the use of the word liberal itself is also uh, interesting. It's in the title of your book, uh, Seven Liberals in the American Moral Tradition." And uh, so, I'm going to acknowledge that I'm shifting the term somewhat here in terms of its uh, its usage when I speak about modern liberal Protestantism. And uh, and yet, I would want to draw a connection between. The, uh, the kind of concerns that these seven liberal figures uh, of your book had uh, in their own times. And I would suggest that you can, you can draw at least some very clear lines of connection to liberal Protestantism today, especially when, for instance, uh, on page 164 in the book, you, you talk about how these, uh, the liberalism that was represented during the, the era of your concern, uh, how it was marked by uh, uh, an abandonment of the inerrancy of Scripture and uh, beyond not only the inerrancy of Scripture, but uh, the uh, the singularity of Scripture uh, towards uh, t- towards other religious authorities. Uh, you know, the the, the exclusivity of of, uh, of Christianity being denied, they really became untethered from that. But they still wanted to maintain a very clear concern of moral agency, moral responsibility for the individual and for the community. I think, in many ways, that's the quandary of liberal Protestantism today. Yeah, I think that's fair. And um, I've spoken at a, at a couple of different liberal Protestant churches as part of the publicity around the book. And uh, so I'm, you know, it helps me learn more about that, that landscape. So uh, why I think maybe the word Presbyterian came into my mind was because I, I spoke at a, a Presbyterian church in, in Oakland, California, um, uh, welcoming, open, affirming, uh, dedicated to the radical proposition of God's inclusive love, right? So they 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 already had those kinds of words and that kind of um, branding, you know, to their theology before I wrote my book. You know, like it, I I didn't cause that to happen, but it really looks to me like wow, I really think this is an outgrowth of that same history. I think it gets so complicated over the 20th century for several reasons. One of which this is speculative in that I, I can't I haven't done the research, but I really do think that the rise of a culture of consumption and with it in the 20th century of the therapeutic ethos and uh, this kind of inward um, uh, developmental work, I think it really complicates what happens for liberal Protestants. Uh, the Cold War <laughs> complicates it. Sure, sure. Uh, and I know you had on your program a while back David Hollinger, a uh, historian right. who's done a lot of work on what he calls the ecumenical Protestants. But I think we're talking about the same people when you say Absolutely. modern liberal Protestants, yeah. uh, who then took um, really specific positions on, on social issues, major social issues, civil rights for African Americans, ultimately for gay Americans, and so on, um, that... Uh, that 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 happen in in light of this kind of commitment, this sort of social engagement, um, and then again, I think it's up to each sort of congregation, each practitioner, each 
theologian, minister, to work out then what is their relationship to the Bible? How are they using the Bible? How do they think of being a Christian? I have a friend who's a, who's a Presbyterian minister who, who, for whom composting is part of her Christian commitment, right? And so uh, it's, it's, it's uh, fluid and dynamic and always dependent on so many factors that I think surround any community and any individual. And interestingly enough, I would put as the uh, the bridge between uh, your book and uh, and this more contemporary liberal Protestantism, and and more importantly, the therapeutic revolution you mentioned. I would put as the crucial figure here none other than William James, uh, because <laughs> he really is indispensable to understanding how this modern therapeutic worldview comes to comes to be. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true, and you know. Uh, some of my some of the stuff that didn't get into the book, or some of the things I like best about William James, who suffered from what they called neurasthenia at the time. I don't know what we would call it today, uh, but he felt bad a lot, and so he tried lots of different things to make himself feel better. Like, for example, hooking himself up to a galvanic battery and giving himself like, you know, little shots of electricity. Uh, he gave himself injections from the lymph nodes of a bull. <laughs> to increase his energy, you know, all these kinds of things that um, that that look uh, outlandish uh, in one way, uh, and at the same time so modern, so connected to this really distinctively, I think, uh, American consumerist quest uh, for the highest possible state of being. And it's so interesting for me to contrast that with John Adams, right, who... Uh, got up in the morning, drank a glass of milk, and rode his horse all day, uh, you know, because he had to get someplace. Um, people in the past look tougher <laughs> than, than people who have gone through this kind of therapeutic turn. You know, speaking of James and, uh, and of your book, one of the delights of reading a book such as your newest work is, uh, is that you have personal anecdotes and information that, uh, that I can just tell you enjoyed mining out of these lives and your research that you found a way to put in the book, and, uh, and, and that's the delight of a book like this. And, and so I'll just tell you, I will take for years uh, the, uh, the communication from William James, uh, was it to his niece, of, uh, of how he wrote his books? You know, uh, uh, taking quotations from other books and putting them together, he said, you know, it's basically yes, easy yes, to yes, write yes, a book. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think it was to his daughter. To his daughter, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah. it's just, it's just an, an amazing statement coming from someone who was, you know, one of the one of the most formative minds and most famous authors. You know, the the giver the Gifford lectures in Scotland, and and, and he explains that he wrote his books by taking quotations out of other books and putting them all together. That's right. That's right. And and, and this is why James continues to charm. You know, that that on the one hand he was eminent and he knew it. And he knew it from before he had ever published a word, right? He knew that he knew that he was he, he, there were great things in store. Uh, and and um, he and as soon as he married, after he married, you know, he became much more productive. Um, and so as soon as he married, he and his wife started keeping what he called the family archives because he knew that his papers were going to be important. And I'm so glad he saved them because I've read them uh, now. And um, and his, on the one hand, being so uh, sort of exalted and, and, and um, important and at the same time accessible down to earth and able to break down the process of writing books in that charming way. And so for me, because I started with William James and I had so much other work to do uh, in order to write the book, I had to leave James to the side for a long time while I was writing. And when I finally got to my James chapter, it was such a release for me uh, to be returned to somebody um, that, that I, you know, I feel quite intimate with in some ways. And what you mentioned earlier about, on the one hand, uh, you know, you called him the most uh, I- important uh, original thinker in American history, which I think is accurate. And, and at the same time, he would not have been able to articulate or even think about the things that he uh, contributed without coming from this cultural background that's Absolutely. so uh, specific and in some ways even provincial because it's just this one corner of the country where people thought a lot about religion uh, and also came up with ideas about democracy and especially about this relationship between the individual and society. And so uh, I think that's part of why he continues to have such traction 
as time goes by because uh, he was able to get a, a finer read on those questions than anyone around him. And so when his Varieties of Religious Experience was published, some of the letters he got from readers um, were so grateful because uh, they said he had actually written what they had been thinking about for so long, but he'd actually done it, right? Um, and so on the one hand, of course, he's an original thinker, and on the other, he was, he was, he was completely dependent. On well, I thought what was so ch- charming about that anecdote is because it, it's revealing, but it's not entirely true. I mean, having read, right. having read James' works, he did not merely uh, take quotations from other books and put them all together, but he was explaining that to a daughter, I think you said was, was about 10 years old, yeah. And, uh, and and in a very charming way, even in the uh, the language that he used, uh, just trying to explain to her, you know, what he was doing. But uh, I think the most important thing about William James, in, in many ways, is uh, is his his foundational influence in terms of American pragmatism and the redefinition of truth, and in, in, in which, uh, as he believed, truth happens to an idea; it's not inherent objectively uh, or ontologically in a in a proposition or, or in a reality. Rather. You had the the therapeutic revolution that came because before that he had already shifted the locus of truth. Uh, you know, to, to to use the philosophical term, you know, epistemological authority was already in the self. And one of the things that became clear to me in, in the way you you wrote your book with James coming in chapter four is that uh, he wasn't the first to think that in, in terms of this American intellectual conversation. And uh, for that reason, you know, I, I go back to the book and I, I think of Mary Moody Emerson, and uh, I realize, you know, that even before Ralph Waldo Emerson, such another important figure in American intellectual life, he had an aunt that was already thinking many of these thoughts and already talking about them to a, a young pre-adolescent Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yeah, that's right. And um, the 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 line that's coming to me now that's that's in the book from Mary Moody Emerson is when she's reading David Hume. You know, the, the Scottish philosopher who really uh, destabilized a lot of the ideas about truth for the 18th century, and such a powerful mind and, and influenced so many people and so on, David Hume. She reads David Hume, and she writes a note to her nephew, the young Ralph Waldo Emerson, and she says, what did he know or prove to vanquish my universals? So her conviction of God cannot be shaken by any philosopher from overseas, right? It's something she knows. It's part of her. And it links to, in pragmatism, this notion of experience. So like you, so you said, the truth happens to an idea. Um, it's, it's the playing out of these things. It's their effect. It's, it's their manifestation in life that actually... Um, not just illustrates their meaning, but but is their meaning. And so no idea in the abstract really has any truth value until it's been able to be implemented in practice. And that's had massive influence throughout American history. By the way, when, when you mentioned that statement from, uh, from Mary uh, Moody Emerson, you can draw a direct line to uh, 1837, Ralph Waldo Emerson, his famous The American Scholar Address for uh, Phi Beta Kappa, in which he calls for American philosophers to stand uh, on their own two feet over against European influences and European authorities. And uh, evidently, he, uh, he'd already heard that from his aunt. That's exactly right. And you know, uh, there's a biographer of Mary Moody Emerson who, who, who has done some good work on, um, on, on tracing the influence on Ralph Waldo Emerson of Mary Moody Emerson. I mean, he borrowed her her diaries and pulled passages out of them and put them into his his work. Um, and uh, she knew that, and she did not approve of the direction he took her kinds of ideas. Um, and 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 one thing that does is illustrate for us how hard it was to be a woman, okay? <laughs> an intellectual right. woman, you know, in the early Republic didn't have a place to develop her work. So it took a man to bring it from the private sphere into the public sphere. Right. Um, so that's one thing about it. Um, but, but it's also that, that uh, Emerson was playing out implications of some of these liberal ideas. Right. Um, sure. And then it uh, was able to be not just, you know, not only a voice for the church as he was in the early part of his life, but this public intellectual. Right? Well, and of course, he not only scandalized his aunt, he scandalized Boston uh, oh, yeah. know, in, in terms of his divinity uh, address and also the uh, in, in some ways the American scholar address and, and others. 
I want to ask a question about how you begin the book. Because any book like this uh, that begins with the kind of assertions you make in your introduction, you're, you're answering somebody. You're seeking to correct an impression. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for names, but I mean, well, what is the argument you're seeking to counter uh, with, the, with the very forceful argument of your book? Uh, well, I referred to it a little bit uh, earlier uh, when I was talking about this idea that there, that there was some Orthodox Protestant faith from which people fell away, and, and that has survived in, in all sorts of ways, too. Um, when I started my project on, uh, you know, and, and was looking at James, and I was starting to read all of the, you know, existing uh, scholarship on the late 19th century and so on, it looks like there was either um, religion, which was specifically Protestant Christian religion, or some other very specific creedal orientation, or there was non-religion, <laughs> and right. and um, and and that's it for American history. But instead, I'm finding I was finding all this stuff that was clearly religious, uh, according to people <laughs> who who were writing it, and didn't fit into that story about American history. And then on and on in my reading, I just kept on coming uh, up against this and especially this idea of of decline and then it links to so many other things that are really important like the idea that this is a christian nation it always was um because those uh specific creedal commitments through this kind of narrative get a kind of legitimacy and authority against which all of the things are measured. And I just find the, the past much more diverse than that. I, I, I find the arguments um, more central in some ways than the agreements, because the agreements don't seem to last for very long. You know, allegiances shift and everything like that. That said, I did rewrite the introduction about 14 times. <laughs> I understand that as well. Well, I, 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 I would have read your book simply because of the title. Uh, because I would have been captivated by the idea, even the question, who are the seven individuals that this author would have chosen for this book? But let, let me just offer respectfully kind of a counter-narrative for a moment to what you're talking about there, because I, I and, and you may be surprised in this, but as an evangelical, I actually agree with you in uh, in a way that may surprise you, and uh, I think I, I think may, may surprise uh, people listening to the conversation. I think it is always wrong to try... And, and I have I have the exact equal and opposite concern you may have in this. I think it's always wrong to try to identify people and, and assuming that they were affirming Orthodox Christianity when they were not. And and so, for instance, when I see uh, someone try to uh, to argue about all the American founders that they were Christians in terms of a creedal or confessional identity, I mean, I I just think too much of of the creeds and confessions to allow that to go by without pointing yeah. out that there's simply no way you can make a Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and in some ways, even a John Adams, I would point out, in terms of at least some of his correspondence, you could look at that and say, that just doesn't match uh, confessional Protestantism. But they were operating out of a worldview, and, and especially I think you actually make this point by using the term Reformation Christian over and over again. Um, they were operating out of a worldview that only made sense in terms of moral meaning out of what they had inherited from the Christian tradition. And I think you're pretty clear about that, actually, from the Protestant tradition uh, or from the tradition of the Protestant Reformation. So I think it's always wrong when people say, look, all the founders were Christians. Uh, that, that's clearly not intellectually honest, and I don't even think it's helpful theologically. But at the same time, in terms of, uh, of, of, of very fundamental issues, including the moral agency you're talking about, they're operating out of a basic set of Christian assumptions or assumptions that only could have come from Protestant Christianity even if they abandoned that faith in terms of its creedal commitments. Does that sound fair to say? Uh, uh, mostly. I, I, I like the way you, you, you put it, and, I, and I'm glad we're in agreement. Um, it also means that you're an honest reader, right? Because, I hope so. Yeah, you know, you're, if you're reading Thomas Jefferson and saying, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work, I think that's, I think that's honest and that's accurate. Um, the 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 one thing i just wonder about is could it only come from a protestant tradition in fact so i mean we don't know because it's a counterfactual because we're never going to be able to go back and replay american history without 
the Protestant Reformation behind it, right? right? And so to me, I mean, what's, what's I mean, just dramatic about this American Reformation um, that, I, that I claim happened and, and had such an important effect is the, 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 the intense piety of New England, and yeah, specifically a Protestant piety of New England um, that transformed and, and, and produced this way of thinking that was fully inclusive and universal uh, you know, over time. Sure. Um, the fact is, it did happen in that way. But I wonder, because we have people who enter the story for a long time, by the way, uh, I thought that my book was going to be um, maybe a third to a half about the reception of the religions of India in the United States. And, and, and I, in fact, when I started by, by reading William James, uh, and I noticed all these um, resemblances between his very specific and, and pretty technical ideas about pragmatism and the meaning of truth and so on that, that you've already mentioned. Uh, I noticed this resemblance between those ideas and a certain strain of, of Buddhism. And so I thought I was going to excavate and find the secret origin <laughs> of American pragmatism in the religions of India. That's not the story, though. I couldn't find it because it didn't happen like that. Uh, but instead, there was a lot of correspondence and communication between Indians in India and these American liberals. And so the figure who just barely enters my narrative, Ramahan Roy, yes. who founded the Brahma Samaj Church of India, a monotheistic church, um, he was, you know, a Brahmin, super educated, and so on. Um, and actually encountered a Baptist minister in India, and in talking with him, uh, you know, came up with his own way of thinking about uh, Hinduism, and later communicated with Unitarians, who liked him quite a bit, and then he traveled and he died, unfortunately, young. Um, but I wonder, and I would really like to know, what ideas in other national culture, can you say something like, cultural religious traditions or something like sure, that, whatever uh, practices are indigenous to different regions, do, are, are there changes like this that also happen over time? Because when you get all the way into the 20th century, um, you find that enlightenments have happened. It's not just a European export, right? But it's something that has occurred in lots of different places in uneven ways. But particularly you know, here in the, the period you're discussing, in the, in the area you're discussing in the early part of your book, that is New England and specifically Boston and in environs, I, I guess what I want to say is that that, uh, that that conversation only took place out of an inherited Christian tradition, even if it was no longer creedally and, and confessionally affirmed. And... Uh, Again, I just really appreciate your book for your contribution to the history of ideas and uh, for in every chapter, frankly, prompting some arguments that I think could lead to uh, uh, to some new understandings. I just have to ask, so this is a massive research project, and I know by the time a book like this has come out, uh, you have, uh, you've already turned to some other things. So, so what's next on your research agenda? Oh, well, this, this one... Um may surprise you, but my next book, I want to write about the history of soccer. <laughs> You're right. So, it surprises me. I did not draw a line from, uh, from, seven, religious, <laughs> from seven liberals to soccer, but I'm, I'm sure there's a tie. And yeah, you probably is. are that tie as author. Yeah, right. No, that's true. There's a passion here. Um, but it's also that um, the formation of the international body governing soccer yes. happened at the same time that Jane Addams was coming up with these ideas about peace that I talk about at the end, where when people from whatever different backgrounds and so on, they can keep their differences, but agree on their common needs. And that's a thing that government should provide. I mean, so this is her argument about, oh, we put this in, in the international sphere and, and you know, ultimately leads to the United Nations. Well, in soccer, it was the same kind of idea that people whatever their differences and colors and all those things could be united in this sport. And so I'd like to look at how that worked on the ground, and especially among immigrant groups in the United States with the people playing. And so I just started, uh, you know, researching and finding all these uh, really interesting uh, relationships between colonized peoples and, you know, uh, imperial uh, domination and then uh, liberation through playing this sport. Now, see, I didn't think I was going to be interested, but I already am. 
So oh, I'll, I will, I will look forward to that book coming out. Professor Kittlestrom, thank you for this conversation uh, for Thinking in Public. Thank you, Dr. Moe. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed my conversation with Amy Kittlestrom about her book, The Religion of Democracy. One of my main interests in this book is the history of ideas and the contribution she makes, indeed the argument she makes, about how these particular individuals, representing not a continuous movement or conversation, but an ongoing conversation, shape not only the way others in their times thought, but the way we think today. Because one of the main points that Professor Kittlestrom is making in her book is that there often is the assumption that there is a direct dichotomy between orthodox, creedal, confessional Christianity on the one hand and an absolute ardent secularism on the other. As a matter of fact, one of the most interesting things about her book is how she demonstrates, without actually arguing in these terms, for something of a middle ground, intellectually speaking, a middle ground between orthodox biblical Christianity and between outright denial of Christianity or the outright rejection of the supernatural. One of the things we find very much a part of our current cultural landscape is the discussion of the increased numbers of atheists and agnostics in this country. And yet, those numbers really haven't increased all that much. What is increasing is an interesting middle ground, now reflected in the response to surveys of none, as in none of the above when it comes to religious affiliation. One of the insights from Professor Kittlesrom's book is the fact that even though many of these people considered in her book had moved far beyond Orthodox Christianity— They have not moved beyond a concern for moral agency. As a matter of fact, moral agency is at the very center of their concern. That's why in my conversation with her, I drew the connection between the era of her concern and those individuals in her book and contemporary liberal Protestantism, which also has a very deep and abiding moral concern, but one that is also, at least to a considerable extent, post-Christian by its theological definition, certainly outside any binding authority of the Bible as the inerrant and fallible Word of God, or even the creeds and confessions of historic Protestantism. There's another part of her book that's just absolutely interesting, and that is her continuing use of the phrase Reformation Christian. I discussed this with her. I found it perplexing, but also very interesting, because I think she's really onto something when she takes these particular individuals and roots their mental mood in many ways to something that could only have come out of the Protestant Reformation. Now, that might be an overstatement in terms of the final moments of our conversation, because perhaps it's not exactly right to say that the intellectual world and the particular intellectual systems of the individuals that she considers in her book could only have come out of Protestant Christianity, but the reality is they did come out of Protestant Christianity, and their worldviews can only be traced to that Protestant Christianity. The central role of William James was another very important part of our conversation and a part of why I found this book by Amy Kittlestrom so interesting. And that's not so much because of appreciation for William James, but rather out of appreciation for his influence. And one of the things that Christian readers need to keep in mind is that those are two separate issues. We don't necessarily have to appreciate someone's thought in order to appreciate the importance of that thought. And we can't discuss contemporary America without discussing William James, without the pragmatism of which he was such a foundational thinker, without his understanding that, as he said, truth happens to an idea. That is a major revolution in thought. And it's one that comes out when we read the headlines of the day or we're involved in conversation with people. When we use the word truth and we understand it's coming from a completely different understanding of how truth is discerned or defined or understood. But we also have to look to William James for that great shift to the interior, to interiority, that shift that set the stage for that therapeutic revolution that explains our times, but can also be seen in someone like even Mary Moody Emerson in her own way, in which that interior life begins to take on an all-new importance. Finally, in terms of theological analysis, it's very clear that all seven of the figures considered by Amy Kittlestrom in this book are outside the pale of what we would define as orthodox, biblical, creedal, and confessional Christianity, certainly confessional Protestantism. They were not all equidistant from orthodox Christianity. Some of them were clearly post-Christian. Some of them were even post-something like post-Christian. They had already moved into something like ethical culture, as she discusses in her book. But when you're talking about figures like John Adams and Mary Moody Emerson, you're talking about individuals who clearly understood their own worldview and intellectual commitments to be rooted in Christianity and even in a form of Christian piety. To put the matter bluntly, it's a long way from Wittenberg in 1517 to America in 2015. 
but one of the great contributions of this book, that is Amy Kittleson's new book, The Religion of Democracy, Seven Liberals in the American Tradition, is that she helps us to understand how you get from that to the other, how you get from 1517 to 2015. In the United States, we can't get there without going through the period that she discusses and without considering the individuals she so creatively describes. As is so often the case, we may see these issues differently than the author, but because of this author, we see them more clearly. Once again, I'm indebted to Professor Amy Kittlestrom for joining me today for Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.